the Drabblecast, episode 211. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Moms and robots on this week's show, but first, part three of our ongoing cryptozoological nature documentary miniseries, In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear. In Search of the Brain-Eating Nandi Bear with Connor Chodesworth. Bears. There are many different varieties. Eight entirely different species of bear all around the world. Nine, if you count James Lipton. And with the exception of roughly half the Earth's continents, one can find bears inhabiting nearly every single continent on the planet. Bears are robust creatures, adept at swimming, climbing, and riding tiny little bicycles. With their keen senses of smell, bears are able to discern both prey and porridge from astonishingly far away. And just like their distant cousins, the honey badger, and Alan Iverson, bears are often known to travel extraordinary distances. The majority of researchers in the field agree. Bears are enormously unpredictable animals capable of nearly anything. With the exception of white bears, which purportedly lack the ability to jump, as documented in several scholarly black bear journals. While polar bear scholars have typically dismissed this data outright, those in the bipolar bear community have generally accepted the claim with a limp resignation and tired self-loathing, before hopping up suddenly in a frenzied state of euphoria to clean the house or scribble out nearly a hundred pages of painfully contrived young adult werewolf fiction onto the back of a roll of damp paper towels. Yes, there are lots of different types of bear but only one type that eats brains. It's alive. I remember. I remember when, as a little boy, no taller than the rusty, glaring zipper of my slouching step-uncle, how the red-hot flames of my bear passion were first kindled and set ablaze, engulfing me like a forest fire that not even I could prevent. It was my eighth birthday, and I had just opened my whiskey-slurping step-uncle's second-to-last present. There are lots of teddy bears, but only one Teddy Ruxpin. Hi, my name is Teddy Ruxpin. Hi, Hi Teddy. Your friend is what I'd like to... He's alive. How does he do that? He's a magic bear. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Why is Sarah calling you, Captain? He's a magic bear. He's a magic bear. James Lipton. He's alive. I think it's time that you let this go. Tiny little bicycles. <laughs> Something happened to me that day. That stuffed robotic bear ate more than just my brain. It ate my heart. It wasn't until years later, after my white-hot bear love had at last dwindled down, that I came to know of the Nondi bear. A different bear. A magical bear. And once again, 
I began to believe. So I came here, to Africa. Was I worried that this might be just another wild Venus goose trap chase? Did it ever cross my mind that maybe, just maybe, I'd come all this way, traveled all these hundreds of Iverstroms for nothing, for naught, for nary? Of course it did. But sometimes in life, my friends, you just have to reach down and take the bull by the balls in order to realize that it was the horns you wanted. You really should have taken it by the horns. Thankfully, there are such things as second chances. I hear the drums echoing tonight. Lost in thought, are we, Chordsworth? Lost in thought about your mom? My mother died last year of cystic fibrosis. Not cool. It's always about being cool with you, isn't it, Taint Hammer? The Buntu tell me you've come to Kenya searching for Nandi bears. Is this true? Maybe. What's it to you? Ha! Why, my dear Chordsworth, don't be ridiculous! Nandy bears! You are nowhere near posterous! Bitch, I was born posterous. Oh, please. You couldn't catch a chupacabra with a 12-pack of goat-flavored Capri Sun. It was called Capricorn Sun, and it was too damn hard to get the frickin' straws into those tiny little holes, that's all. You couldn't find a wingman in a bar full of fatties. Well, of course I couldn't. Wingmen roost in caves, not bars. What I needed was a cave full of fatties. You couldn't spot a skunk fox on an entire television network called Fox News. Come on, if Rupert Murdoch's people can't dig up something on those stinky little bastards by now, nobody can. Admit it, Georgeworth. You're nothing but a hopeless romantic. Ein Unverbesserlicht, if you will. And you're nothing but a douchebag from Germany. Ein Deutschbag, if you will. You're out of your league here, Chordsworth, I assure you. You come here wanting to hunt Nandy bears, yet you have no manpower, no weapons, no supplies. You simply have no idea what you're getting yourself into. Don't bring a dildo to a knife fight, Mr. Chordsworth. Don't tell me what to do with my dildos, Mr. Taint Hammer. All right, worm boy. Your artificial vang. Your funeral. As I'm sure you are well aware, however, the Nandy Bear hunts only under the full cover of darkness. No doubt you are also aware that tomorrow night a full lunar eclipse will occur that will blanket the pale Kenyan moon in shadow for several hours, allowing a window of absolutely perfect Nandy conditions. Ten long years I've waited for this moment, Chodsworth. Ten long years. I've embedded myself deep in the culture of the Bantu people, studied and observed the land, graduated as a rich physician at the top of my class, and all for just one reason. All for just one thing. A different type of bear. A magical bear. A brain-eating bear. Exactly! Chodsworth, you and I may have our differences, but we have one thing in common also. We both know the red-hot touch of passionate bear love. I know these bears. I know where to find them. I know how to catch them. And, well, I was going to offer you my help. Your help? And what exactly would you be wanting in return for your help? Why, simply co-publication, of course, regarding the find. Co-publication? Not in a million Iverstrom's taint hammer. Do you really think I would ever co-author a paper with someone like you? Someone so excruciatingly ridiculous? 
If worms were fish, the mating and courtship behaviors of Mongolia's deadliest worm, the Mongolian death worm, by Connor Chodsworth and the God Emperor Barno. Okay, listen, that was an awkward situation. There was an army of holy warriors involved. Oh, all right, we'll co-publish the findings. But how do I know I can trust you, Taint Hammer? Why, you don't, Herr Chodsworth, you don't. I suppose you'll just have to, how do you say, take the bull by the balls? Eugenie Mombasa. And believe, says Erica. And believe, I repeat, slowly and in the first person, to close out the episode of my nature documentary miniseries. And believe. Ooh, I don't know if I'm quite ready to trust that sly German witch doctor yet. There's no taint hammer in team. Let's listen to a hundred word story, shall we? This week's Drabble is called Mommy Issues, and it comes to us from Rish Outfield. Rish has had several Drabbles on the show, and they're always a delight. You can, of course, find him regularly over at the Steve podcast, where he reads stories with partner in crime Big Anklevich. Find them at doonsteve.com. We had to take Mom to the mental care facility in the end. She had too many conversations with invisible people always telling us what messages Cleopatra or Amelia Earhart or Pat Nixon had for my sister and me. We were afraid she would be a danger to herself. The doctor examined her, and Mom alternated between answering his questions and whatever she claimed Joan of Arc was asking. My sister ran outside, unable to watch. When the orderlies escorted Mom to her room, I was nearly overwhelmed with guilt. It's for the best. Spider-Man told me from the corner. All right. Well, our feature story this week is At the End of the Hall by Nick Mamatis. Nick is the author of the Lovecraftian beat road novel Move Underground, which was nominated for both the Bram Stoker and International Horror Guild Awards. He's also the author of the Civil War ghost story Northern Gothic, also a Stoker nominee, the suburban nightmare novel Under My Roof, and over 30 short stories and hundreds of articles. A native New Yorker, Nick now lives in the California Bay Area. At the End of the Hall first appeared in Nick's short story anthology You Might Sleep, which came out in November of 2008. The story is read to you by someone you've heard on the show before, Delianne Forgay. Delianne's been doing voice for over 20 years, starting out first with radio dramas for the CBC. Her background includes theater and film, both in North America and the UK. So without further ado, we bring you At the End of the Hall by Nick Mamatis. My earliest fear, well, the one I remember anyways, was of great pulp magazine robots with hot water heater bodies and vacuum tube eyes. My brother loved the pulps and forbade me even to touch his precious magazines. So I wouldn't. I'd stare and stare at the covers, though. Hourglass damsels in diaphanous gowns draped over thick slab altars, knives inches from the cleavage of their breasts, the glowing eyes of the P.I.s, 
pin-headed little green men in flying saucers with convertible bubble roofs. And the robots. Always the robots, with their cylindrical torsos and pincer claws for hands. Oh, I'd want to tear off the cover, or at least flop another magazine on top of it to hide the thing. But I wasn't allowed to touch. So I studied the picture, memorized every detail. Later, I was afraid of being raped and killed on some quiet street rounding through the woods. Glowing headlights, unctuous come-ons by a too-slick man with thin lips. Then, his meaty hand over my mouth. What would it smell like? The knife held high in the dark, with those headlights glinting in the steel. After I got married and had children, I was afraid that I'd come home from some errand, or maybe just wake up one morning and my little boys would be dead and blue in their beds. Then it happened, and I swallowed every pill in the medicine cabinet, lost my husband in the fog of grief and hospital stays, and spent the rest of my life typing addresses on envelopes for a community college library and baking cakes for office birthday parties. If I liked the co-worker, pineapple upside-down cake. If I didn't, devil's food cake from a no-frills powdery mix. I was afraid someone would realize what I was doing, that nobody cared. Forty years later, I'm in a hospital bed again. Sands one lung, tubes everywhere. My roommate humming her way through a BM while a fat nurse boredly watches. And I fear nothing anymore. Not even death. My son, my surviving son William, was just here visiting. His mouth's full of wishes for my recovery. And he stoked my distaste for his visits with every platitude. Oh, it's not William's fault. Well, much of it isn't anyway. He's just another foolish man with balding pate and a necktie, my granddaughter Madison. Oh, and what a name that is. Whatever happened to Betty? Bought him for his birthday with money I gave her for her own birthday. <laughs> That's the circle of life these days. After Harold died, I'm afraid I just never liked William that much. I loved him. I love him still, dearly. And my heart leaps whenever he comes to visit, which is daily, and more than my roommate gets from her loud clan of raw-bone mustachios. William, unfortunately, picked up the awful habit of wishing for my husband and father. Harold wasn't like that. He never wished for anything. Me neither. And not because I'm one of those sour women who keeps hopes and dreams at arm's length, the type who loudly declares over coffee that she doesn't hope, so she won't ever be disappointed. <laughs> Disappointment is a birthright. There's no avoiding it. But I don't refrain from wishing for fear of my wishes not coming true. 
but for fear of one of them, and only one of them, coming true. I wish I were dead. I knew he said it the day I saw Harold, cold and still in his little room. But I swallowed the wish along with the sleeping pills, and I'm glad I did, despite it all. There have been moments of joy since. Madison's birth, for example. Or the time I went to Egypt on vacation and saw the pyramids. Oh, I even rode a camel down to Cheops. <laughs> and the kind men who worked for the tour laughed like American men rarely do. <laughs> Joyfully, not ruefully. Oh, I don't wish I were dead. <laughs> not yet. There is one last thing to do. William's visits rake me over the coals. What a fool I raised. He expends wishes in the way only someone who knows they won't ever come true could. If only one or two had come true, he might have learned something. But I'd be the worse for it. I remember when he was three. His face oddly serious when he announced at dinner, I wish I were an ice cream man. Oh, I cringe at the thought of him shuffling into the room every day during visiting hours in a paper hat and white slacks with sticky hands, with loose change jingling in his pockets. I'm glad he works in a bank and keeps bankers hours. It means he visits early and leaves early. If only he had left earlier a month ago, back when I lived at home. Instead, he waltzed in, sweaty and in shorts, put his feet up on my coffee table, and after nattering some pleasantries and trivia about my granddaughter, wished for a cheese sandwich. Of course, I made him one, and a glass of lemonade, and heard his excuses between bites and slurping sips as to why he couldn't mow my lawn. He wasn't halfway through the sandwich before the phone rang. My doctor had the test results. He'd need to operate. There would be chemotherapy. It was stage 3A cancer, but if I didn't check into the hospital right away, it might soon become 3B, and then surgery would be futile. After sickly hugs and consolation, William left with promises to do whatever he could to visit me every day. He said he'd pray for me, which is just another form of wish. Too bad for me that he wasted the wish that actually came true on the sandwich. He left the cheese sandwich to dry on its plate. I threw it out the next morning, having interrupted my packing to tidy the house. Don't touch me, I tell him. You're not allowed to touch me, the doctor says. In truth, I just can't stand being touched at all. And William is the only one who would listen. So I tell him to keep his hands at his sides. The medical staff, from my doctor down to the lowliest CNA, all take endless liberties poking and turning and brushing the hair from my forehead as if I were an infant, or already dead and needing to look presentable for the wake. 
I don't dread their forced clockwork cheerfulness and grasping hands any more. I am beyond that, numb to it. I'd simply rather have it end sooner rather than later. Even worse than the poking or the endless measurements. And that I cannot dissuade even William from participating in. Did you eat today, Mama? he asks. Did you eat all your pudding? Did you have a glass of water? he asks. Would you like another? I'm sure you can have two glasses of water. How about a nice orange? Maybe just two slices of orange. Two slices? I ask. William, two slices of what size? One can slice an orange in half and have two slices. Oh, Mama, you know what I mean. Two quarters. His emphasis suggests that he's not done treating me like a child. Ah, so you mean to offer me one half of an orange. Is that right? Well, in that case, why didn't you just say so in the first place? William sighs so easily defeated. That's right, half an orange. Can I cut this here orange in two, right down the middle, and offer you one half? I can leave the other half on a napkin on the night table in easy reach. No, thank you, I say. I don't believe that I'm hungry for orange right now, and I certainly won't be hungry for a dried-out, shriveled-up half an orange later. Later, I give the orange to my roommate, and she smiles appreciatively. I feel warm, and she shrugs her shoulders in a little dance, imitating William's woe-begone gait. I smile. The staff keeps track of my evacuations as studiously as William does my ingestions. It's demeaning and a worthless endeavor, as foolish as counting the seconds to the ground after falling from an airplane, but I cannot stop them. What is the point of all this empty medical ritual? I am not going to live. I feel sorry for William and the hours he wastes here. Nobody ever asks me if I'd like a book other than the trashy paperbacks with the creased spines the hospital has to read to while away the days. But every day some intern or other says something like, You sure do read a lot, Miss Moss. Can you really finish a whole book in two days? Yes, dear. Between scooter rides and sock hops, I think. But I speak only the first clause. William promises to bring me some books from my shelves, but he turns up empty-handed. I'm so sorry, Mama, he says. I must have forgotten. The edge in his voice hints that he has a screw of his own to turn. Later, a nurse increases my pain medication, as if to thwart even my reading time. They even measure my television viewing, but never ask me what I think of any of the shows. 
I no longer have opinions as far as my son or my doctors are concerned. Unless it's regarding how high I want my feet at night, or whether I prefer the blue or gray comforter from my home. Fear, I am bereft. Wishes, I'm waiting. But opinions, I still have. Madison, the poor thing, takes after her father with her big round head. It won't serve her well in adolescence. With luck, she may grow to be handsome, but never beautiful. And like her father, she is full of specious wishes. Grandmama, she says when she visits, I wish you'd feel better just for one day so that you can see me in my recital. Madison takes ballet and is in that awkward stage between the cutesy stomping of kindergartners dressed in sequin costumes and the beginnings of real dance. She twirls about constantly, but is scarcely better at it than she is at wishing. Better for one day, indeed. Her eyes are hazel, like Harold's were, and she looks up at me happily like she just told me a secret. Truly not seeing all the tombs or my desiccated state. I cannot correct her. Dance as well as you would were I in the audience, child. I wonder if Harold would have married had he lived. What would his children have been like? I'm running out of things to say. I will, Grandmama. I wish I was a prima ballerina already. She twirls again. My roommate turns away from the television to smile indulgently at her and me. It goes on like this, but thankfully Madison mostly stays home with her mother when William visits me. I prefer William's company as at least he will occasionally fall into silence after some struggle over how much of my breakfast I consumed. And I need silence to gather my will. You see, I have a theory. I have never, and I do mean not even once, made a wish. Not even as a little girl. Not for a kitten nor for the happy revelation that I was not an ordinary child, but the lost adopted daughter of foreign princes. Kittens grow to be cats, after all, as my mother often reminded me, and as exotic as they sounded, I suspected that lost princes could be cruel. Most wishes are as useless as my son's verbiage, but some do come true. My roommate this morning wished that her own sons would drop by, even though it's a Sunday and they only come after church on Sundays. Twenty minutes later, the four of them and some wives and kids spilled into the room, violating all the rules of visiting hours. They bellowed well wishes, messed around with the foot pedals of her adjustable bed, and even sang some ethnic song. One of their children even moved as though to pull out my IV tube. Exhausting. The novel I was reading, about some 
lusty pirate with a V-shaped latissimus that he often flexed while swaggering against ruby skies, was no escape. Oh, for Faulkner. I nearly wished. William got his cheese sandwich, did he not? Madison wished for and received a pink tutu and a purple top for her recital costume last week. I never made wishes, because I was afraid they'd come true. Now, on the edge of my consciousness, I feel some hint of apprehension that my one wish won't come true. I push it away into the miasma of morphine in which my thoughts have to float. Then I pinch the tube of my morphine drip to stop the flow of the drug, to bring the pain, and to focus on my memories of him. I wish and wish and wish like a shivering child. That night, at the end of the hall, I hear his footfalls. They're quiet at first, but soon there is no mistaking them in the otherwise quiet hours of early Sunday. My roommate awakens with a start and grabs the handrails of her bed to pull herself up and peer at the door. For a moment, he is still, and she squints into the darkness. The drywall explodes, and pincer arms flailing, he is here. Oh my god, the woman shrieks, and I laugh as I drag myself to a ready-seated position, up as best I can. The robot's eyes blaze with arc light as he steps around my roommate's bed and plucks me from mine. Let the tubes fall to the floor. Let my roommate shriek and scream and pray. Tomorrow you'll have a tale for your oafish brood, won't you? The steel of the robot's torso is warm and rumbling from whatever unearthly clockwork motivates its form. I thought it would be cool and unyielding, but I'm glad for the heat as I'm wearing nothing but my embarrassing hospital gown. He cradles me close and stomps into the hallway where the night nurses have already gathered with fire extinguishers and wheelchairs. Beyond them, a chunky intern dives for the nurse's station phone. Robot, the death rays! hair stands on end as his vacuum tube eyes blaze. Twin white squiggles of lightning erupt and hit the phone. It explodes in a cascade of sparks and black flame. Then the intern wails and skids across the floor, his smoldering hand tucked under his pendulous stomach. The robot steps over him and carries me down the hall as the patients awaken and call pathetically for their nurses. I wrap my arms as tightly as I can around the base of the robot's head, freeing his right arm to swing and menace with clanking pincers. My legs are cradled at the knee by his thick left arm. We're flanked by that easily marveled idiot intern from the other day as he stumbles from the men's room. No! What is that? 
He cries out stupidly, and I declare as the robot caves in his sternum with a single blow and sends him down to the tiles. It's a robot, fool! Read a book! At the end of the hall, the robot swivels his torso 180 degrees so that I can be safe as he backs into and then through the bearing wall. The dust of brick and wallboard, the wine and burning air of ignited boot rockets deaden all my senses, save the feeling of our featherfall descent into the parking lot. The robot kindly gives me a few moments to compose myself and comb the dust from my hair with my fingers before beginning our march again. William! To William's house, I say, and the robot obeys, turning the corner at Alston Way. <laughs> yes, William, the time has come. And Madison, too. You must know the truth. We're coming for you. Oh, do not fear, children. Grandmama won't hurt you. Nor will her friend with the lightning bottle eyes. We're cutting across lawns, trudging through the spray of late-night sprinkler systems, and pushing past fences so that you may know the last secret of a long, sour life. Don't waste your time and breath on propriety and nonsense, William. Forget your girlish dreams, little Madison. Oh, no, Betty. I will call you Betty. Your middle name is Elizabeth after me. <laughs> March on, robot! Never mind the barking dogs or the distant shrieks from foolish women in curlers and mud packs. Let them gawk! Let William and little Betty gawk too. Anything to shake them out of their complacency and ridiculous little wishes for winning touchdowns and snow days. The world can be theirs if they would just reach out and take it. We're at the edge of the driveway. Go on, crush the rhododendrons. Let the mailbox fall to the ground. Let the tiles on the steps crumble to powder under our weight. But yes, oh yes, ring the bell like midnight's own fuller brush man. You're a clever dream thing, aren't you? The lights are coming on. William will likely struggle into a robe before tromping down the steps. But my breath is leaving me. So, nudge down the door. Inside, Betty, on the opposite end of the vestibule, her bucket jaw hanging low as she stares. In the distance, William squeaks with fear and outrage, calling on his daughter to run. Oh, oh, he's so afraid. And of nothing at all. He has a ball bat. Ha! <laughs> How funny. He drops it, and the end lands on his toe when he sees me cradled, half dead in the nut-and-bolt crook of the robot's arms. But he doesn't even wince, because a little pain doesn't matter. <laughs> he's learning already, but he's never been a quick study. Grandmama? Betty says quietly. 
I look at them both and laugh and laugh. <laughs> Never fear! <laughs> I cry out, sharper and more joyous than I've ever spoken to her. Oh, it isn't worth it, child! <laughs> Don't be afraid! And she's not. But my son squats and grabs her roughly about the shoulders for his own fearful sake, not hers. She shrugs him off and steps forward. I want to see my granddaughter. Harold, I say. It's a command. And at that word, my Harold's eyes spark and cast the room in the whitest of light and long, stark shadows. They are waiting to discharge. Make a wish, I tell my William. And I can only hope he grants me the next full breath. That was our story. Man, awesome story. Awesome reading. Oh, look at me gushing about my own podcast. No, but really, deathbed reflections and rampaging robots, poignancy and badassness sung in perfect harmony. The worst thing about getting old, I imagine, isn't the sagging parts or hummus-scented farts. It's the gradual loss of control. Don't worry about the orange slices, folks. Just don't forget the Faulkner. So here's something. Many of you folks out there might have picked up on all the rejuvenating that's been happening around the Drabblecast. It's true, we have a groundswell of new listeners, a smattering of new editors, which we'll tell you about later, and the topper. We're at work on a spiffy new website, a vessel worthy of communicating our might and glory. Fans are lending a tentacle or ten. As we speak, artistically inclined Drabblecast listeners are darping out new illustrated covers for more than half the episodes in our back catalog. But it doesn't end there. Starting now, we're kicking off the DARP's sister initiative, the DRIP, aka the Drabblecast Reclamation of Information Project. It goes like this. Google can't listen to our episodes and has no idea how awesome we are. So we at the Drabblecast are asking our adept amateur writing corps to help present offerings to the deaf mute lord of the internet. We've separated out 12 episode allotments from our full catalog and we'll be surmising and categorizing by volunteers. Visit bowkire.com forward slash drip or check our show notes to learn the details and download the drip doc. Email us and get involved. We're looking forward to it and super appreciative. So, going a little late this week, let's get right to our 100-character story winner this week, Noctum93. Here it goes. No matter which states I move to, I can't seem to find a minister who will marry me to my heifer. Animal husbandry, indeed. Think you can write a fun or interesting story with only 100 characters, not counting spaces? Submit it to the TwitFix section of our discussion forums off Drabblecast.org. You might be next week's winner. If you are, we'll post you in our Twitter feed, at the Drabblecast, so that all can bask in your glory. 
All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast runs off the support of listeners such as yourself. If you are moved at all by this week's story, consider dropping us a donation via the handy links off of our website, drabblecast.org. You are effectively paying an author for another such story. Awesome, huh? The Travelcast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell, but spread it all you like. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of associate editor Matthew Bay, a cave full of wingmen, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, it's a robot, fool. Read a book. Mm-hmm. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round.